Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey everyone, if you're serious about longevity, then you need spirituality. Now, this isn't just something we believe here at My Buddy Green. The science is pretty clear on this. As Dr. David Desteno tells us in this episode, research shows people who engage in spiritual practices live healthier, happier, and longer lives. David is an expert on this subject as he's a psychologist and professor at Northeastern University who focuses on understanding the science behind spiritual practices and how they can benefit our well-being. He's been featured in numerous media outlets, including the New York Times, Washington Post, and Wall Street Journal. Look, what's so interesting is David has a very broad definition of spirituality that expands way beyond religion. We cover everything from gratitude, mindfulness, meditation, prayer, and even CrossFit and SoulCycle. Yes, you heard me right. On that note, we get into the spiritual benefits of group fitness. Is your group fitness class on the way to becoming the next church? It just might be. This is a fascinating episode that may just change how you flex your soul muscles. You don't want to miss it. David, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me on. Great to have you. I think your work is fascinating. So let's start there. Talk a little bit about your background, the work you do, and the why behind all of it. Sure. Um, It starts way back when I was an undergrad in college and I was trying to just, I was interested in big questions, you know, are people good or are they bad? How do we find meaning? How do we find happiness? Um, and I was trying to decide between being a history of religions major, so studying world religions and being a psychologist. And I ultimately decided to be a psychologist because that allowed me to use, to use the scientific method. And so instead of just debating things that sounded like they had no answer, I could run experiments and, and learn things and find answers. But through that time, the questions that I focused my research on, uh, you know, how do we find meaning? How do we find joy? How do we become more compassionate, find connection? Every time we found something, found an answer to how people do this, I would look around and think, oh, wait, they're doing this in that spiritual tradition or in that religious practice. And for a scientist, it's kind of not fun to be scooped when you're scooped by thousands of years. It's even, it's even worse. And what I came to realize is that there is a wisdom in many of these practices. And it was rather kind of, I think many scientists like me are rather hubristic in the sense that we shouldn't have been surprised. You know, it would be strange if 
thousands of years of spiritual thought meant to help people live better, more healthier, happier lives didn't have something to offer. And so this in by no way is, is me trying to be an apologist for religion. I think it offers practices that move and speak to our mind and body and whether those practices are used for good or for bad depend upon the intentions of, of the people using them. But on average, uh, if you look at the data, it shows that engagement in spiritual practices leads people to be healthier and to live longer and happier lives. And so as a scientist, I became interested in, in why. Why is that? And, and what can we learn from that? We've done that a little bit with meditation. You know, there's been this mindfulness craze over the past, I don't know, 10 years or so. Um, and we're seeing it now with psychedelics a bit too. People are looking to psychedelics. Um, but I think if we don't appreciate the traditions from which these come and the, the kind of guardrails that are built around those practices, we're missing a lot. And so a lot of my work these days is on what can we understand about spiritual practices? What can we learn from them? What can we adapt in a, in a useful way for people who may not feel attached to any given theology because institutional faiths are having their failures? And can we find some wisdom there that we can use to live happier, healthier lives? So you mentioned organized religion, mindfulness, psychedelics. How do you define spirituality? Yeah, so spirituality, I think, is this desire to touch something and connect with something greater than ourselves. And that's a part of lots of religions. Um, but it's much more than you know, going to church or temple or synagogue every week. And there are a lot of people who are spiritual, but not religious is the way that they will characterize themselves because the traditional religions no longer speak to them. And so for me, it's about connecting with one another and connecting with something greater and growing our sense of awe and the transcendent at times. You know, I think that's what attracts people to things like psychedelics. It's, it's a very fast route to getting there. Um, we know that in some ways when you have that, what people often call this mystical experience where you feel expanded, infinite love or compassion for each other and connection for each other, whether you're doing it through meditation, deep prayer or psychedelics, what the science is showing is that it's the same parts of the brain that are being activated. There are different ways to get there. Um, some of those are housed in traditional faith. Some of them can be outside. But to me, it's about personal growth and, and contact with something greater. And if you can do that through traditional faith, that's fine. If you can do it through a different route, that's fine. The one thing the data really shows, though, is that saying you believe in God doesn't predict much of anything. It's actually engagement in these spiritual practices that build community and build spirituality, like anything else, like an exercise practice. It's a practice. You're strengthening, I mean, I hate to use this term, but like your soul muscle. I mean, that's a bad analogy in many ways. I think that's a great analogy because I, I do think we should be thinking about spirituality as a muscle that needs to be trained. And it's a modality practice or protocol that should be part of our health and well-being toolkit. Uh, with that said, I, I, I'm curious, what does the science say? Like, what is it specifically? So like, for example, what immediately come to, came to mind for me is, you know, meditation or prayer. So if I am meditating or if I am praying, I'm sitting down, I'm at ease, 
I'm probably more conscious of my breath. I wear a wearable, I wear a whoop. I'm gonna see my heart rate drop. Your, your heart rate dropping is, a, your resting heart rate is a good thing. And if you're doing that throughout the day, that's a good thing. So that's an example of a ritual during prayer or meditation. So if we were to look at the science and unpack, you know, is it the, is it the ritual? Is it the belief uh, that there's something greater than self? Is it the gratitude process, pr uh, practice? Is it uh, doing no harm? Is it being kind to our neighbors? Like we all need that one right now. No one gets along with anybody. That's another problem. Like what, walk us through, what does the science say? If you were to deconstruct, if you were to define spirituality or being, uh, being spiritual, there are all these kind of boxes you, you need to check. Mm -hmm. What does the science say about each of these? Yeah, you you know you raise a good point. All of it's all of those things you mentioned. And what I'd like to point out to people, you know, we're a society that loves life hacks. Give me a life hack to like help me not procrastinate, to help me earn more, study more. And the way I like to describe these practices is the life hacks that we psychologists often give people are like playing single notes on a piano. These rituals are like symphonies because they are multi-leveled and they're doing all of those things at once. So let's let's take an example, like you said, with prayer or meditation. So when you engage in prayer or meditation or reciting mantras or chanting, what it does is it slows your respiration rate. When you slow your respiration rate, you slow your heart rate through activation of the vagus nerve. And what you're doing is you're getting increases, increased changes in your cardiac rate. People often call it vagal tone. And this is uh, a big influence on cardiovascular health. And the point that you said is exactly the right one. You do it repeatedly, right? When you're doing these practices multiple times a day, what they are doing is giving your cardiovascular system, it's relaxing it, but also giving it an appropriate exercise multiple times a day. When you engage in uh, meditation. There is scientific work from our own lab that shows that it makes you willing. After we found after eight weeks of meditation, people were more willing to come to the aid of other people. They were also less likely to react with um, aggression to any type of insult. Now, that doesn't mean that they like being insulted, but what it does mean is that there's not this rising blood pressure, this, okay, I'm going to give it back to you in this escalation of, of violence and hostility, also something good. That act of compassion, when we, they're more likely to help someone, that cements social bonds, right? And we know one of the worst things for humans is being lonely. When people are lonely, you hear this, this epidemic of loneliness. Not only is that psychologically painful, but it's psychologically painful because it is physically bad for us and the stress that it puts on our body. And so it helps us reinforce those connections. Now, there are lots of different practices besides mindfulness that we can talk about and, and how they help us meet life's challenges, but it's a very multi-layered thing. And I think that's what science is beginning to recognize, that we need to unpack there's not one magic bullet built into these practices are things that they do for our emotional states, things that they do physiologically for our cardiovascular states and our stress hormonal responses that we can begin to unpack and, and try to chart their impact on health. You know, you mentioned loneliness and yes, I wholeheartedly agree. We need IRL connection. We're facing a loneliness epidemic. Being lonely is the equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. It, it, it's terrible. It can go on and on. 
when I think of spirituality and the role it plays here, this belief in something bigger than oneself, that you're not alone in times of adversity, experiencing a loss, I think of this belief system as being paramount because life throws you curveballs and it, it's pretty bleak. And so can you talk about the belief in something bigger than oneself, whether it's it's God or deity or the universe, but like this idea that there's something out there? Yeah. So one thing we know is that uh, engagement in these spiritual practice as uh, especially it, it's at any age, but the data seem even higher for, for young adults right now. And those are the folks who are, who are facing some of the hardest times, you know, the data show that, that, you know, stress and loneliness, um, depression and anxiety are spiking in, in young adults. And what the data show is that engagement in these practices cuts just death due to all told morality by, you know, 30%, increases cardiovascular health uh, and, and reduces cardiovascular events by about you know 25% in people. Um, it, by a factor of five, reduces deaths of despair, right? These are people who are, who are feeling so alone, so, so broken that there's, they, they feel there's nothing there for them. And so the, part of it is what they do to our stress response, but part of it is this feeling of connection to something greater. That is the sense that there is some force in the universe, however you want to define that, whether it's spirit, God, karma, whatever it might be, that is a benevolent force that cares about you. And if you believe in that, and if you trust in that, there is data that shows it actually reduces uh, depression anxiety and deaths of despair, primarily because I think there is that feeling of, of connection with others and with something larger than yourself. Yeah, we've had Dr. Lisa Miller on the show as it become a dear friend of ours. And you know, she did that groundbreaking study where essentially said when, when parent and child are quote unquote high in spirituality, and she's a very broad definition of spirituality similar to yours, that that child was 80% or five times less likely to experience depression, 80% protected, five times less likely. If you think about the mental health impact in teens, this is incredible. And what was so, it was even, to take it even further, she found that the benefits were protective over one's lifetime. And so I don't, one of the reasons why I'm so excited to have you on is you know, we're passionate about health and well-being and longevity here. And in my view, given what we have just stated, we should be prioritizing spirituality in the education system, in like in terms of as I think about nutrition and exercise and sleep, spirituality, like in my view, it should be up there. Maybe, maybe number one. This is the point. I so I recently wrote a piece for the Wall Street Journal, and this was the point that I made. If, if, if I said to you, Hey, here's a pill you can take it. It, you know, if you follow people for 15, 20 years, it cuts death by any cause by 30%. It increases your cardiovascular health threefold. It reduces your odds of depression and anxiety by 25, 30%. You'd say, give me the vitamin, right? 
that's exactly what this does. And there's really good, you know, for a long time, there was debate about this because you could, you know, if you're a critic, right, you can make the argument, sure, you're showing me data that people who go to services regularly are less depressed or have better cardiovascular health. Well, maybe it's because the people who are clinically depressed or cardiovascularly compromised can't get out of their beds to come to church, right? And so it's a biased sample. But there's lots of good work now that if you follow people as they begin to go to church or temple or synagogue or stop or become more spiritual or drop that, you can actually find the direction of causality. And it really is showing that it is engagement in these practices, both because physiologically they do things for us and psychologically they do things for us. They they work on our, our stress response, our cortisol responses, our cardiovascular system at the same time that they're cementing social bonds and social networks. So church, organized religion, we'll, we'll, we'll touch on the decline there and what you think is going on. Is, is the secret of those who attend regular church services, is it the sermon? Is it the interacting with other people? Is it the work that some of these folks do during the week because they're involved in small groups? Is the secret really connection? Is the secret the sermon? Is it something else? So the short answer is we don't know yet exactly what it is. But the slightly longer answer is because when I talk about this, people often say, well, Dave, if I join a club or a bowling league, isn't that the same thing? Which is a fair question. So social connection, hanging out with other people in any venue, in any way, is a good thing. But what the data are showing is that when you do it in terms of uh, a, a spiritual context, the benefit is added. So yes, social connection is part of that. You know, when you go to services regularly, you are seeing people, right? And you're having that social contact. But the benefit to your health that you get doing it in that context compared to just the club is greater. Part of that can be because it's actually increasing the connection in some ways. So one thing we do in my lab is we, we were studying what's some way that we can make people feel closer together. And we thought of this idea called motor synchrony, right? Which is moving in time together. You see this when you see flocks of birds or schools of fish, right? Suddenly they're individuals, but they form a larger entity. So we had people come to the lab and we had them put on earphones like we're wearing now. And they simply had to tap a sensor on the table in front of them. And we rigged it so that sometimes the two people who didn't know each other would be tapping in unison. And sometimes they'd be hearing random tones so they were not in unison at all. We then separated them and we asked them, how close did you or how similar did you feel to the other person? That simple act of moving in time made people feel significantly more close to one another. And they'd say things like, oh, I think he was in my class last term or I saw him at a party. None of that was true because the one other person in the session was an actor that we hired. So we knew there was no connection. But they had this sense of feeling connected and they had to make some sense of it. Then we took that actor who they had been tapping in sync or not with and we had him get stuck doing this unfair, god-awful task that we designed to be really laborious. And what we found is that by a factor of three, if people had been kind of moving in time with him before this, they reported feeling more compassion for this guy getting stuck. 
and they asked us by a factor of three, can I help him out? Right? This is somebody you didn't know, and they'd spend significantly more time doing stuff to help him reduce his labor. And it's just that simple act of moving together in time. And since this, this has now been done in spiritual contexts where people are singing songs together or sacred songs together or sitting, kneeling, standing together, doing these things, and the effect is even stronger. And so what this means is that when you're coming together in a service, not only are you coming together, but you are doing things in that service that are tweaking your mind and making you feel more empathy, more compassion for each other, which are working to cement those bonds, right? And so these are, you know, I thought, oh, look, we have a way to make people feel connected. And I thought, oh, wait, they do that in that service. They do that in that practice. They do that over there. And they were ahead of us. Yeah, there's something very powerful when a large group of people are singularly focused on a task and in sync, whether it's being being at a concert and everyone knows the lyrics and they're all singing or a yoga class or soul cycle. We'll, 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 we'll move on to that shortly or whatever it might be. There's so many great examples. So before we go to uh, sweaty spiritualism, which I think is fascinating and you talked about on your own show, can we spend a moment on organized religion, its decline, what what are we getting wrong there? Where are they failing? Yeah, so you know, I think 2020 was the first year since Gallup, the big orga- survey organization, started measuring this that the majority of Americans reported not belonging to a, a church, a synagogue, or a temple, and people are leaving organized religion in in droves for lots of reasons. Um, there have been institutional failures and scandals in lots of ways. There's hierarchical sexism and power structures. People don't agree with the theology. Um, But most of the people who are leaving, some are becoming strident atheists, but that's the minority. Most of them label themselves as as nuns. And what nuns mean is, is not that I'm an atheist, not that I'm against spirituality. I just don't identify as Catholic, Jewish, Muslim, in terms of belonging to these organized faiths. But they're looking for new ways to be spiritual. And I think that's because there is this sense, right? We we have this desire to find meaning in our lives, to connect with something greater than ourselves. And for lots of our history as humans, religion did that for people. Um, But I think people are looking for new ways to do that. And that's why we are in this period where the kind of spiritual landscape is is changing dramatically. Um, my only worry about, and I think in many ways it's a good thing, my worry is though, is that if people become too idiosyncratic about it, like I'm going to take this element from Buddhism and this element from Hinduism, I'm going to be 75% Christian, 5% Sikh with a touch of Judaism, you begin to form your own spirituality that is that is a spirituality of one. And if you're only doing that you are going to lose the connection to other people. And in some senses, the data show that private spirituality is a benefit, but the benefit is even greater when we engage, as you're saying, with each other to foster that, that social connection. And so that's my only, my only concern about how we're splintering. So I read something recently, I believe it was also in the Wall Street Journal, that talked about some of these modern churches, I think, I think it was in Orange County that they're almost becoming full service. You know, not only do they have uh, a place to worship, they've got 
fitness facilities and daycare and kind of everything. And we're doing well when most organize, other organized religions were rapidly declining. Maybe just spend a moment on that. I'm curious your take. Yeah, I mean, so I think often in, in the States, because it is primarily, at least traditionally, it was, it was uh, a Christian country. Outside of Christianity, religion tends to be more about what you do than what you believe. That is, it informs the rhythms of your life. It brings community together. Um, it, it supports you in that way. And I think as churches became more about just, here's what we believe, and especially as they became more involved in politics, um, it turned a lot of people off. And they're losing that, that community, that connection that supports people in their times of need and facilitates their coming together more than just once a week where everybody comes in for a sermon and leaves. And so it doesn't surprise me in some ways that these other organizations are beginning to fill that role. Well, you also wrote an op-ed in the Boston Globe and you did a podcast this as well titled, Church Should Be More Like Burning Man. Please, please tell us more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so let me say, I, I, I have not ever been to the burn myself, but I, I, I talk to many people who have, and you know, a lot of people have this idea that it's just people going to party and and be bacchanalian in the desert. And for some people, that is true, you know. And you have the the, the Silicon, you know, Valley folks who kind of jet in. But there's this wonderful work done by uh, neuroscientist um, uh, Molly Crockett at Princeton where she uh, studied people attending the, uh, the full week uh, of Burning Man. And what she found is that on average, the majority, so you know, 60% or more of them, report it that it's a transformative experience, that it's a spiritual experience for them, and that it, they have these emotions of finding meaning, finding connection, changing their outlook, changing their life. And even on behavioral measures, she found that they become more pro-social. They're willing to share more with others. They're willing to support and self-disclose more to others. And for many, it's it's not a party. It's actually a life-changing experience. And some of the more traditional faiths are beginning to realize this. So uh, there are there are now camps there called sorry, can I swear on your pod? <laughs> Called, you know, well, I'll just say, you know, religious AF, um, where uh, there are, you know, Christian ministers who go there and are burners and are welcoming fellow Christians there who, who left the church, but are suddenly finding, rekindling their spirituality there by finding connection with each other and kind of raw embodied spirituality. You know, when you're there, I've heard in the desert, you, you can't help but recognize your vulnerability and to be physically present in the heat and the stress on your body and to realize that the only reason that that encampment exists is because people are sharing and taking care of each other. Some bring drinks, some do the laundry, some clean up, some provide services and lectures. And it is this community that ultimately depends on one another. And some people there, as I talk about in that in that article, are refinding their Christianity or their Judaism in a way that is very, very embodied and very present and very emotionally powerful. Um, 
And when I said in the article, church would be more like Burning Man, it means we're, we're missing in modern churches these days, that spiritual element, that way to, to connect with one another and to feel part of something larger than, than ourselves. It's a good segue to sweaty spiritualism, which is the intersection of mind, body, green. You know, we're sweating, we're working out, but there's a spiritual component. Can you talk a bit more about that one? Yeah. So, you know, if you look at organizations like CrossFit and SoulCycle, um, so a friend of mine, uh, his name is Casper Turkile, who has studied a lot of this, he has found time and again that within these spaces, people are filling spiritual needs. You know, they're having, you know, funerals and weddings at CrossFit. They are um, having moments of touching the transcendent at soul cycle and with soul cycle as as he likes to remind me you know the hint is in the name um it is it is there and what we're beginning to find is that using the body people often say the body is a temple and that typically means you know you should take care of your body right you should treat it with respect you should exercise but the body is also a vehicle to spirituality and can be a temple in that way as well, a way to connect. And what we're finding is that when you engage in, in exercise, not only does it release endorphins, right? The, the chemical that is the response that's responsible for the runner's high, but it really, it releases endocannabinoids, which are, um, chemicals your body produces itself that work on the same receptors that cannabis does. And it's not to get high, but when you experience these uh, releases of endocannabinoids, they socially bond people. And so when people exercise together versus then when they exercise alone, and this is work by, uh, by Emma Cohen at Oxford, what she finds is that people feel more bonded to each other. They can actually feel kind of a, a spiritual ecstasy when it gets to the right level. And so at Soul Cycle, there's one, one of the last things people often do at the end of the session is, is called the hill climb. And it's this way of together pushing yourselves to that heightened level of, of exertion and arousal. And as those chemicals release, and as you're doing this together, and especially if you have music in a spiritual context, it can put your mind in this moment of deep opening and people will cry and people will feel connected and they'll feel attached to each other and to the, the soul cycle instructor, um, in ways that mimic in some sense, what you often see at, at emotionally evocative, um, um, spiritual, uh, worship events. And so I think what we're finding in these, in these classes is a way to use the body in a healthful way, not only to increase our own physical health, but to increase our connection and openness to each other and to something greater. So I'm curious what your view is on the power of the instructor or the orator. You know, as, as I think about our institutions globally, some would say, you know, there's a lack of leadership. <laughs> um, and if I think about, so for me personally, I don't attend regular church services 
because I would prefer is I think about like what, what I go for is the sermon and the oration and I'll listen to occasional Joel Osteen podcast. And that's, he's great. You know, in the same way, you know, Norm, people love Norman Vincent Peale a hundred years ago. It wasn't a hundred years now, less than that. But, and I think about what makes soul cycle too. It's the environment, it's the music, but it's, it's the personality. It's the instructor. So many great yoga classes in person. It's the instructor. It's the personality. So it's, it's, it's that leadership, if you will, someone who can, has that presence, who knows what to say, when to say it is how, how, how important is that? It's hugely important. And I know, you know, some of the soul cycle elite instructors won't even be on the bike. They'll have somebody else on the bike, but they will be walking around giving the oration, the sermon, the secular sermon, uh, in the, in the way that a religious leader would. And so I think it is very important. And some people are just naturally good at it, but the risk is that as people engage in this practice, what you're, what we're seeing more and more, and I'm hearing anecdotally is that people will come to their fitness instructor and ask them for life advice and for counseling. And a lot of them are like, I, I wasn't trained to do this. You know, if you're trained as a rabbi or as an imam or as a minister, you get training in pastoral counseling. And so you learn how to do this. And so part of the risk and part of the worry, but also part of the potential benefit is as people are looking to charismatic instructors, is, is should we, can we equip those folks with more training to help them feel empowered in doing this. You know, the, the originators of SoulCycle sold it off, I think, what is to Equinox. But now they're starting this new, I can't remember what it's called, People Something. But it's all about coming together and finding connection, not the exercise part. But it is about this secular spirituality. And so I, I think the instructor is hugely important here. But I think many of them don't have the training if they like in how to do that part better or how to address the non-exercise challenges that people bring to them because they feel so inspired or connected by them. Unfortunately, I see this one all the time in our world, especially in the age of social media, where someone develops an area of expertise in a specific practice, whether, you know, call it cycling or Pilates, and they build a large following and that audience loves everything they say. And then Maybe there's a social issue. Maybe there's a nutrition issue. Maybe maybe there's something else, and they just veer into it with the same level of confidence. Sometimes the the advice is sage, and sometimes it's not at all based in reality. But they've got that confidence and the following. And we live in a world where it's almost a death by a thousand cuts in terms of all the influencers or, or experts. And yeah, and I mean that's part of it, right? You know, you have to be doing it. I mean, sure, everybody wants to do well and, and, and grow their, their profile. But, you know, what you have to realize is, is, is people, especially when you begin, well, I mean, the same thing with health, but especially if you're getting into issues that are touching on spiritual counseling, what do I do in my marriage? What do I do with my kid? What do I do? I've lost someone. How do I get over this grief? There needs to be a little bit of, of humility there. And, you know, th this is what I say to even my colleagues, right? You know, we're all writing books that, you know, go to the, go to the, Barnes and Noble, and you'll find, you know, books by tons of psychologists. I think we need to have a little more humility to look at what can these traditions offer us that have been dealing with this for millennia. You know, we're, we psychologists have been here for a little over a century. Um, can we learn anything from that? 
Um, but I think your point is well is well taken. And again, I think that's why my hope would be that we can begin to offer options for these people who are looked up to as influencers, as instructors, to equip them so that if someone comes to them with these questions, they have some expertise that can point them in the right direction. Well, we've talked about the decline of organized religion, talked about CrossFit, Burning Man, Soul Cycle. What are the faith institutions of the future? It feels like we're at a little bit of a crossroads here. Yeah, what I what yeah, I worry we've seen about it. is there is there an amalgamation where someone creates something new where it's just, you know, all of these things combined into one. I mean, religion has always been changing. Spirituality has always been changing. You know, there's always new ones being created, and most of them fail. The ones that that go on outside of the fact that someone can enforce them by power, right? Which which can happen. But if we take the power differential away, you know, hopefully we don't have any more emperors or dictators that will say everybody will be this. Um, it are the, it is the ones that touch people that that fulfill some mission, some need in their lives. What I worry about going forward now, and we're beginning to see this, and you're seeing it everywhere, is, and I'm not being facetious when I say is this whole worry about AI. There was a church founded in in the Bay Area about ten years ago called the Church of AI, where the the idea was that it was going to be, you know, sentient AI as it developed would no more would have basically like godlike intelligence, and so what it told you would be better than what any human could tell you. Of course, it it went under because I think it was a little, it was a little too early, but we are now, there are now AI uh, infused um, robots, humanoid robots in Buddhist temples in Japan that are giving advice. There are, there's a robot called Santo, which is used as a prayer device for people in in Catholicism in Poland and Italy. There are rabbis right now who are having chat GPT write their sermons and then giving it and seeing if they're, if their congregation can tell the difference. And so, you know, I, I, I worry a bit about how this is going to go. Um, just like you can see in, in any realm, but it is, it is already infusing that. And the reason I say that is some of the work I do in my, in my kind of non-spiritual side of, of research is I work with folks at, at M- MIT, uh, Cynthia Brazil, who builds these wonderful humanoid social robots. And we've run experiments where we have people talk to these social robots uh, or also with um, um, agents on screen, so virtual agents. And what we can show is that by controlling the nonverbal signals that they give off, we can influence how much people trust them. So, you know, when you and I are talking, if I'm trying to decide if I want to believe you, um, I can't predict whether you're telling me the truth with perfect accuracy or not, but I can predict it with better than chance accuracy because you are giving off signals. When we move into the realm of AI and, or robots, where we can control every signal, nonverbal signal, intonation, what they're doing, facial expressions, there is no leakage. And we have ultimate control over what they're doing in ways that can influence people even more so than human to human contact. And so again, once we enter the realm of spirituality, that worries me because if we're using robots or AI to give spiritual or moral or ethical, you know, messages, 
we have greater control over influencing people by controlling exactly what they're saying, how they're saying it, what they're looking like in ways that go far beyond human to human interaction. Yeah, that sounds concerning to say the least. <laughs> so, and again, you know, again, it's who has who has the control and what are they using it for? Um, and I, I think our technology is outstripping our our ethical management of it, and so that's a concern to me. How do you also think about the changes we see in one's spiritual practice as? they age, you know, from childhood, teens, 20s, 30s, and so on. You know, at the, the pure, I'll give an example, it's top of mind, that the purest, you know, we have a four-year-old daughter, and the other day out of nowhere, she just said, God is in my heart. We were like, oh, that's like, and my six, my six-year-old's like, where's God? I don't see God. <laughs> uh, I think it's symbolic of how we change. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So if you look across the lifespan, what typically happens, well, first let me say this and I'll talk about the spiritual element. Across the lifespan, except very recently because we're having this issue with, 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 with Gen Z and stress and depression, but in general, um, happiness and well-being used to follow a U-shaped curve across the lifespan. Um, it bottomed out around 50. And the reason why is that's the age when the generation before you, your parents are starting to have health issues and pass on, your kids themselves are moving out, it's harder to keep up at work, et cetera. It's also the age at which in Western countries, um, antidepressant use peaks. Um, it's also the age at which people who have moved away from religion start to begin returning to it. And I think it's because it's an age where, you know, the end isn't near, but you can kind of see it, right? You begin to sense mortality. You can feel it in your body. People you know, some of them are beginning to pass on. And it's that age of what meaning does my larger life have? What do I want to do before I, before I pass? Um, David Brooks talks about it in terms of, uh, you know, resume virtues versus eulogy virtues. Before that, it's like, how do I get ahead in my career? And now it's like, the eulogy virtues of what do you want to be remembered for? And issues of, is there an afterlife, et cetera? People begin to focus on that. And I think people who, who do find meaning and can make that shift through finding spirituality again, tend to find greater meaning, greater connection, greater happiness, greater joy. And I think because it's that practice, right? It's that practice that helps us become healthier find connection, find meaning. The question that I have is, well, if we found it earlier, if it balanced our lives earlier, could we actually avoid that bottom, that nadir and happiness that happens in around 50 or not? That's the question that I don't know. But I do know that it is, it is the natural progression for many people to begin looking at that age. And those who find it tend to have a higher trajectory in terms of increasing their happiness again as they age. So if I can assess my cardiovascular health or cognitive health through a series of tests, how does one assess their spiritual health? It is a good question. There, there are no metrics 
that we know of that do this, um, in, in, in at least with any sense of precision that you could do with cardiovascular health or health in general. I think for so long, science has been like, uh, that religion, it's all superstition. I don't want to, I don't want to touch that. It hasn't been really examined and that's, that's beginning to change. And, you know, my hope, the reason that I do this as a scientist is I said, let's not argue about whether God exists. It's not a question science can answer, you know, unless you know the mind of God, you can't run an experiment. Maybe God only likes to help people on every third Tuesday. You know, I don't know, right? You know, I, I don't know. So let's put that aside, but let's look at the well-being and the health outcomes that we know are attached to people who are engaged in spirituality. And let's try and find how we can measure that and what the mechanisms are. So the ways we measure it now is simply are people spiritually engaged, which are how often do you go to religious services? How often do you pray? How often do you meditate? How often do you do those daily activities? And we find a positive relationship, but I think that's a, a poor measure, right? Because what we don't really have is measures of spiritual growth in people. That is the kind of the subjective experience of it. Well, you're leading me to my next question in the sense of you know, if, if I want to put on lean muscle mass, I need to go to the, the gym and I probably need to lift heavy weights and I probably need to do so at least a few times a week and consume enough protein. There's a little bit of a, a protocol. If there's a bare minimum, if someone is listening and they're, 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 they're buying what you're selling and, but they don't really have, you know, never really maybe shunned by organized religion, uh, maybe don't really have a spiritual practice, but they're saying, all right, I'm sold on the longevity benefits what do I do? What's the bare minimum? Like, what, what do you say to that person? So what I, it, it's funny, we are starting uh, a study on this now. So let me give a long winded answer, but I'll circle back to that is one of the other things that we know that we found in my work in my lab that increases both health and well-being is, is a gratitude practice, right? We know that when people feel and experience gratitude, there's better physiological health, there's better psychological health, there's better social connection. When you come in my lab, I can make you feel grateful about something in the ways that we do it and see a huge effect. When you go off in the real world, people do like a gratitude journal. That's what's hot these days, right? The effects are really tiny. And I, I'm like, why? Well, if you think about it, when you feel an emotion, it influences what you do while you are feeling it, not once it is gone. And so most people gratitude journal kind of at the end of the day. And that's great, but that means you're going to feel grateful for 20 minutes before you go to bed. And so it's not influencing what you're going to do during the day. And so we've started a study where we're looking at this, this Jewish spiritual practice called the, um, I can't remember the name, but it's basically throughout the day, there are all these very brief blessings you can give for lots of things that you, you know, a beautiful sunset, someone helps you, your health, you see a beautiful painting, you, you know, you've you're got a good night's sleep, whatever it is. And what it's like is it's, it makes you microdose gratitude throughout the day when it can influence you. And so what we're looking at is, you know, is, is this a delivery mechanism that makes it a better practice than doing this right before you go to sleep? And I think to now come back to your question is what these spiritual traditions and practices do is they offer like an exercise practice, something that you can do 
on a daily basis to get those changes. If you engage in, in, in contemplative practices and meditation, you're increasing your vagal tone, you're giving your cardiovascular system a, a, a rest and putting it through something that increases heart rate variability also, which is good for you every day. It also makes you more compassionate and empathetic and it'll make you reach out to other people. Gratitude practices, rather than say a prayer every day for what you're grateful for, if you are not a person who's attached to any type of theology, stop and pause about little things that you're grateful for every day and let yourself experience it. That's what the prayers do. And we find in our lab is whether people come in and they say, I'm grateful to God for X, or I'm grateful to the guy who helped me when I dropped all my stuff all over the grocery floor this, this day. The effect is the same. What these practices are doing is changing your emotions, changing your physiological responses in a repeated way. And so whether it's mindfulness, whether it's gratitude, whether it's um, deep breathing or chanting, whatever it might be, engage in it. Now, you might not have the added benefit of believing in something greater that also comes with it. Um, but there is some benefit. And that's the other thing we need to look at is how much can be extracted from these practices and still be beneficial if you remove the higher level theological component. So specific to your findings on gratitude, was there a critical threshold? Was it, you know, 10 gratitude touch points during a day or 20? We're doing the study now. So the results, the results aren't in yet. And when are you going to have them? That's fascinating. Uh, we will have that. The first round will probably be by the end of the year. Could you walk us through this, like that, that group? I, I'm very curious what the study looks like. What are they doing? So, um, so the way the study works is, is, uh, so the, the Nassim Bahol Yom is the name of the practice. And so when you get up in the morning, there are these things that you always say that you're grateful for. And so you thank God that you were we woke up this day, you thank God for the food you have. But through the day, there are hundreds of things and they actually have this app that they can, if you're feeling grateful for seeing a beautiful sunset, if you're seeing grateful for a wonderful meal that someone gave you or seeing someone you haven't seen, or, you know, yesterday your arm was hurting you, but today you feel strength in it and you feel better. You can pull up the app and it basically gives you like a 30 second prayer to say. And it is a way to microdose gratitude. And what we're going to do is compare that also to a way that also to secularizing those. So take out the thank you God for this, but just to focus on you're grateful that you're feeling better, that someone helped you for the sunset, for a meal, for whatever it might be. Um, and we're looking at how many times a day people feel this. They are reporting on their smartphones what their emotional states are over a four-week period. Um, and we want to see if we can begin to figure out if you're feeling microdosing gratitude multiple points throughout the day compared to just once at night or compared to just nothing at all, um, what type of benefits does that give you in terms of your social network size, in terms of your well-being? We also have a measure of, of self-control that we're putting in there, right? One of the things that really underlies health is the, is the ability to persevere against the desire for short-term rewards versus long-term gains. And so we are kind of measuring people's patience and perseverance after these four-week periods. And so we'll see. Wow. So what's been the most surprising study that you've been part of to date? Probably the study we did on, on meditation um, because 
there is this tradition in in science about in psychology about studying meditation, but it was all about you know does it give you better memory? What does it do to your white versus gray matter, etc. But no one ever thought to study why it was created. Right, it wasn't created to give you better memory. The monks will say, sure, it'll give you better memory. Sure, it'll make you feel more relaxed. But that's not what it was intended to do. It was intended to reduce suffering in the world, yours and somebody else's. And so we decided to put this to the test. And so we would bring people into the lab and we had them do uh, eight weeks of meditation with a Buddhist Lama every day. Um, or we also did it subsequently with an app like Headspace. Um, or we had them do brain training. So they were doing things that were effortful with mental training, but had nothing to do with meditation. Or they were put on a wait list. They didn't do anything at all. And then they came back to the lab and we constructed a situation where they thought we were going to measure their memory and stuff. But when they, when they walked into the lab, um, they, they were in the waiting room and we had somebody come in who was an actor who was on crutches, wasn't really on crutches, but used them and looked like she was in pain and dropped stuff and needed help. And we found simply by, you know, a factor of three people who had meditated for eight weeks were more willing to jump up and help this person and see if they could relieve their pain. Uh, in another study, we had someone, they were working on a group project with each other where they had to um, write a brief you know, five-minute speech about what they thought their life goals were, and they had to deliver it to their partner. And their partner was an actor who we had trained who basically um, gave them really negative, insulting feedback on their life plan, right? Um, and we gave them the opportunity to kind of think they were going to seek vengeance on this person. Nothing would really happen to the person, but they thought they they could do a way to kind of give this person a little bit of pain in the next part of the experiment. And what we found again is by a factor of three, people who had meditated for eight weeks refused to want to cause the other person pain. And it wasn't that they thought it was okay. They still said, you know, I really want to tell him that what he did was wrong and it hurt me but I don't want to lash out at the person. So think about Twitter, right? You know, it's like this means I'm not going to lash out at you and escalate on social media. And it, to me, it was just proof of what these spiritual folks have been saying for thousands of years, that this practice increases compassion, reduces our desire to, to cause aggression and violence. And it was eye-opening to me, right? I was just like, this is huge. And there's something here. If you could wave your magic wand and do any study of any kind, what would you do? I mean, to me, some of the some of the most exciting work now is being done not by me, but by other folks around around psychedelics. You know, there's this this sense of it not curing, but but reducing depression, PTSD. Um, People who engage in these practices, some of them say it, it, it was the most spiritually rewarding experience of the life. People who are facing terminal um, illness diagnosis suddenly are are at peace with them. But you know, and when like when I talk to folks like Michael Pollan or the researchers at Johns Hopkins about this, you know, they will say that if the if you're not careful using psychedelics, twenty percent of the time it can be a really bad experience. Eight to ten percent of the time it can actually cause people to actually have mental health issues. And it's because if you do these in their original ritualistic contexts, right, there is a shaman there who 
who through chanting, whether it's ayahuasca or psilocybin mushrooms, through chanting and music sets the context, gets you in that relaxed contemplative space before this happens, stays with you and guides you and helps you make sense of what's going on afterward. So when they do these experiments at Hopkins, they don't leave you alone. There is someone there who you've built a relationship with you, who sits with you while you have the psychedelic experience, who when it goes bad, will put their hand on yours or on your chest to kind of bring you back and make you feel safe, help you make sense of the hallucinations and stuff that and visualizations that you saw afterward. What is this person doing? They're basically the modern day shaman. And so the idea is that when we extract these elements, right, the chemicals from the practice that goes around it, it's risky because we're removing that scaffolding that makes it work well. Um, and so to me, I, I would like to see more studies done on things around grief practices, things around spiritual psychedelic practices that incorporate these religious elements outside of the theology to see what we can learn from them. And so there's not just one. Um, I think there is a, a huge opportunity for, for many of these. Let's say you were blessed with a grant that required you to put a mantra or a saying on a huge billboard somewhere on the you know the four hundred five or whatever highway you uh, find yourself on. What would be on your billboard? I would say that that to me, when I when I look at religion and spirituality and what I think encapsulates the best part of it in terms of our health and well being is a simple sentence that would fit that billboard, which is, is it's not all about you. If we can spend a good part of our day remembering that it's not all about us, right? It's about something greater and what we can do for each other. That will go a long, a long way. Amen. Is there anything we haven't touched on that you want us to, to cover before we close? No, I, I, let me give you one more example because you know we've 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 talked about a lot of um, individualistic ways that that spirituality can help. But one of the things that also really impressed me is if you look at how people grieve uh, when they lose someone. You know, oftentimes we think about uh, what do we typically do in all in all traditions? We eulogize the person, right? And it seems kind of normal, but if you think about it, it's kind of weird, right? Because if you lost a job that you loved, or if your partner left you who you love, you wouldn't want to perseverate thinking on thinking about them because it would hurt. But when someone dies, this is what we do. And some of the most interesting work coming out right now is showing that one of the best predictors of can we move through grief in a way that it is, is resilient is can we consolidate positive memories about the person that we've lost? And religions have been doing this forever. There are also things in like um, in, in sitting Shiva, which is the, the, the Jewish practice, that kind of seems strange. Like they cover their mirrors when people die in the house. Uh, and, they, and, they're, and you're not supposed to focus on your own appearance. Uh, so people won't shave or they won't wear new clothes. Um, what are we finding in, in psychology? Well, whatever emotion you're feeling, when you look in a mirror, it intensifies it. And so if you're feeling happy, you look in a mirror, you become happier. If you're feeling grief and you look in a mirror, you feel more grief. And so they've anticipated this. If we can reduce self-focus when you're grieving, 
it stops rumination. It reduces the pain you feel. And so I see embedded in all of these practices, little, little things that they have discovered that move our mind and heal our emotional states in ways that a lot of people outside think, oh, that's just superstition. Why do you do that? But there's a wisdom there. And and my hope is that we can begin to look at all of these practices to see that how they can help people live healthier, better lives. So what's an example? Someone loses a loved one. What should we change in that grieving process? So if you lose a loved one, the best thing is, is, is to celebrate them, to focus on the good. Don't try and, and not think about them. Um, that forming a positive memory is one of the best things you can do. It is also a period of what's called instrumental support. So instrumental support means people are there when you need them. It's not like how many friends do you have on Facebook. It's like who shows up. And so in Shiva for seven days, people, the community just comes together and there are people in your house all the time. They come together, they pray together, they reminisce together. And when they pray together, what is that? That's that synchrony happening. And that builds connection and empathy. And so, you know, what I would say to people is if you're not Jewish, um, make it a habit of showing up for people who lose one another. Do it for each other. Celebrate the person who has been lost. Cover your mirrors. Don't focus on your own appearance. All of these things increase your resilience. And have it go on for a period of seven to 30 days because that's the typical kind of length of the intense part of the mourning period. You know, nowadays people, somebody passes, you send them a like, you send them the flowers, maybe you show up at the funeral and that's it. That's not what people need. Um, And again, this is why those spiritual traditions form those communities and those practices that support people in times of pain. And when we lose institutionalized religion, we're losing, we're losing some of that. And we need to find ways to incorporate that. And that's back to my point about soul cycle. Why are you seeing funerals at soul cycle? Because that's people's community that they feel attached to. Um, and it's a way that we can support one another. You know, it reminds me about a month ago, we were walking in, uh, in Miami, my wife and my wife and I, and I, we saw about, it must've been a couple hundred Harleys on a Sunday. And everyone was, I'm like, it's Miami, it's it's hot, and everyone we're like, this has to be a funeral, and they just kept on going and going and going. Uh, and I choked up a little bit, you know, because you, 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 it's something you don't see. Granted, you see a hundred or two hundred Harleys coming; you, they're not wearing all black, uh, and it was very touching, you know. And if I think about and speaking from personal experience. You know, yes, getting through loss, there's that component of of having family and loved ones around you. But for me personally, I think what got me through those moments was this belief that there was something, there was some something you know bigger than myself or this person that perhaps we would connect again, uh, that they would always be with me, that it wasn't just this person's gone they're six feet under the ground and that's it. Cause I think that's also a heart, like when you lose someone you love and, and you have this belief that, well, they're gone, that's it. They're, they're, when, when, <laughs> it's, it's, it's tough enough as it is. It's that makes enough. it kind of very bleak. Yeah. You know, the, you know, in, in, in traditional Chinese religion, they have this practice 
um, called uh, ghost money, which is when somebody dies, they'll get paper money, it's not real currency, and they'll burn it. And the idea is it it's, can be used by the person who has passed, right? It's a way of connecting with them. Or if, or if the person liked boating, they'll get a paper boat and they'll burn it. And it's a way to send it to this person. And people say, oh, that's silly. Why would you do that? But really what it is, is a ritualized way of remembering that person and what was important to them and feeling like you still have an ongoing relationship. You know, So how would you do it in American society? Well, think about what was important to your dad or your mom or your friend who you lost and honor them by donating to that cause or giving time to that cause, keeping that relationship going. And you know, a lot of my scientist friends say, Dave, don't you know the afterlife doesn't exist? And I'll say, look, I grant you that there is no scientific evidence for it. But we don't know for sure that it doesn't. Nobody knows. And so why are we going to be so ardently against it? You know, would you think 10 years ago that things we're finding out now about quantum physics would have existed? People would say no. So my question is, does it do any harm? And if you look at the data, people who believe in an afterlife actually, and are religious, again, live better, more healthier, happier lives. And so if there's no harm to it while you're here on earth and we can't prove it wrong, why do we want to be so adamant to say it's not true, right? Well, especially if the science points to the fact that it's detrimental to your health and well-being. And if the, we're, we're, we're a health and well-being you know, show and this is, this is a practice you need to consider if you're serious about your health and well-being and longevity. Right. And, you know, and, and so I, I'm like, you know, why are we, why are we arguing about stuff that we don't know? These practices increase, increase people's health and, and well-being. Um, let's learn from them. You know, if, if you don't want to buy into a theology, no one's saying you have to, but I think there are too many scientists who look at people who hold these beliefs as, ah, you're, you know, you're, you poor misguided soul. So. Well, I, I like to subscribe by this, by the saying strong beliefs loosely held. Yeah. Well, that's it too, right? It, it is, it is, there is some humility, right? Anyone who tells you they have all the answers and, you know, you see the same thing, you know, there are many people who are very authoritarian and fundamentalist about faith or any ideology. Um, and that can be a problem, right? There has to be a humility. None of us here have all the answers. And so I, I agree with your sentiment. David, such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Sure. Thank you for having me on.